I'm Dr. Timothy O'Donnell, and I welcome you to this program where we're examining the writings found in the Gospel of St. Luke. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who did instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us by the same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things, and ever to rejoice in his consolation, through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In our last program, we had finished in chapter 3, discussing the baptism of Jesus. Immediately after discussing the baptism, St. Luke tells us that Jesus began his work at about the age of 30, and then goes on to give us his genealogy. It's very interesting to consider and compare the genealogy as it is found in the Gospel of Luke with that in St. Matthew. St. Matthew, of course, is very much concerned with emphasizing the Jewishness of Jesus, and therefore emphasizes that Jesus is descendant of David and Abraham, a Jew among the Jews. Luke not only mentions that, but takes the genealogy all the way back to Adam. As a matter of fact, at the very end of chapter 3, it ends up reading, Seth, the son of Adam, who was of God. Now here, very clearly, we see the influence, most probably, of St. Paul. Remember, St. Paul had taught that Christ was the new, or the second Adam. And so here, St. Luke, who was Paul's faithful friend and companion, was reflecting that teaching, emphasizing the universality of salvation, that Christ came to save all men. And just as the old Adam was of God, so Christ, in a new, more profound, far more perfect way, was also of God, in the sense that he was the natural son of God. This takes us now right into chapter 4. Now, in chapter 4, we find the temptation of Jesus in the desert. We read as follows. Now, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit about the desert for 40 days, and being tempted all the while by the devil. And he ate nothing those days, and when they were completed, he was hungry. Talk about an understatement. Forty days without food, and he was hungry. Emphasizing, of course, the humanity of Jesus at this time. Although filled with the Spirit, he still was a man, like us in all things but sin. He goes out to the desert, which the Jews refer to as Jeshimon, which meant the devastation. It was a burning furnace, about 35 miles by 15 miles. A lot of limestone, rocks protruding from the ground. It would have been a very difficult spot for anyone to spend a considerable amount of time, and certainly 40 days in this area would have been rough indeed. As he prepares himself for his ministry, he encounters Satan. Let us proceed on with the text. Chapter 4, verse 3. And the devil said to him, If thou art the Son of God, command that this stone become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Not by bread alone shall man live, but by every word that come from the mouth of God. Interesting to note here that the devil asks a question. Did the devil really know that Jesus was the Son of God? 
It's a dispute that different theologians have taken different positions on down through the centuries. But clearly the devil would have been aware of the Annunciation. He would have been aware of the divine plan. But there was something that he did not know. And that was what did it mean to have God incarnate? And isn't it interesting that the first line of attack approaches Jesus through the sacred humanity? In other words, he has a hunger instinct. You should use this. So this may very well be the reason why there is this sense of uncertainty in the temptation. Now, when we speak of a temptation of Jesus, it's best to understand this as a testing. When we think of temptation, we think oftentimes of something being presented to us that draws us from the inside, and we have this sort of attraction. That's because of our fallen human nature. Well, Jesus did not have a fallen human nature. He was not affected by original sin. So the temptation didn't come from within him, but were presentations which were offered on the outside. And yet notice Jesus does not use miraculous powers, but responds with the very weapons that we ourselves can use. Scripture, fasting, those great corporal works of mercy. The devil continues, and the devil led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Must have been a mystical vision. And he said to him, to thee I will give all this power and their glory, for to me they have been delivered, and to whoever I will give them. Therefore, if thou wilt worship before me, the whole shall be thine. Now, we know Satan's the father of lies, but here he's speaking about the spiritus mundi, the spirit of the world. The world is under the evil one. One of Satan's titles is Prince of this World. All the power, all the glory he offers for worship. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, The Lord thy God shalt thou worship, and him only shalt thou serve. Then we move on to the third. Then he led him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If thou art the Son of God, throw thyself down from here, for it is written. Notice now, the devil himself is quoting sacred scripture. He will give his angels charge concerning thee to preserve thee. And upon their hands they shall bear thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. So even the devil can quote scripture. Just because someone's quoting scripture doesn't always mean it's an authentic doctrine. Scripture has to be understood in its totality. And there must always be an openness to the fullness of the word of God as communicated by the church. And Jesus answered and said to him, responding again with scripture, it is said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It's almost as if our Lord is toying here with the devil. And when the devil had tried every temptation, he departed from him for a while. Now, of course, Jesus, after being baptized in the Jordan, goes out into the desert. Now, we remember also that Israel, after the exodus from Egypt, was also out into the desert. And there in the desert, they fell to the sins of sensuality, idolatry, and presumption. And it's very interesting that all of the temptations which the devil presents to Jesus are very similar to the ones that the people of Israel went through when they were out in the desert. They fell. Jesus, however, who in his person embodies the new Israel, does not fall. And so something very profound is being communicated to us, that we, if we remain united to Jesus, we also can overcome if we are faithful to him. Now, another question arises here. There were no apostles present 
Nobody saw this temptation. So how do we know that this is what happened to Jesus when he was out in the desert? The only possible source by which the apostles and then the evangelists came to know this was that Jesus himself must have told them privately of this experience. That's why this particular story should always be dealt with tremendous veneration because in many ways we're seeing the spiritual autobiography. The Lord is revealing his heart to us of this encounter that he had in the desert with Satan. It is also important to realize that each one of these temptations was a temptation away from the cross. Do you remember in Matthew's Gospel when Peter, after hearing that Jesus told him that he had to go and suffer much at the hands of the scribes and elders and then be crucified, Peter took him aside and said, come on, Lord, you don't have to do this, which was a natural human emotion. And Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, you Satan. I lead you. You do not lead me. Now, why did he call Peter Satan? It's because the essence of the satanic temptation was always a rejection of the cross. Peter was trying to lead Jesus away from the cross. And in every one of these temptations, whether it was to turn stones into bread or have the power and glory of an earthly Messiah or to try to win men over by doing something spectacular like hurling oneself off from the temple, all of these were subtle rejections of the messianic goal of the cross. And so that's always important to bear in mind. Without the cross, there is no salvation. And we will see this in Jesus' teaching as we continue on through the gospel. After this encounter, we are told in verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and the fame of him went out throughout the whole country, and he taught in their synagogues and was honored by all. Galilee was a large reason in the northern part of the Holy Land, about 50 miles by 25 miles. At dense population, there were about 3 million people living in Galilee at that time. It was very fertile, and there was a free spirit that characterized most of the people compared to the conservatives that you would find, more conservative spirit that you would find down in Judea. So like a rabbi, he would travel into the various synagogues. Luke then presents for us the trip back to Nazareth. This must have had tremendous significance for him, and certainly the Blessed Mother was present when Jesus returned to that synagogue. In many ways, this episode that we're about to read in Nazareth, which John Paul II, in his apostolic letter on the third millennium, draws our attention to, this return to Nazareth, in many ways is a summary of the entire gospel. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. According to his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood to read. And the volume of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. And after he opened the volume, he found the place where it was written. Now, this is significant. Jesus finds the spot where it's written. So this is something that he wants to read. And he reads from Isaiah. And all throughout his ministry, he associated himself with the great prophecies of Isaiah. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Origen, one of the church fathers, sees a foreshadowing of the Trinitarian formula right there. Notice, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So there is a reference here, a foreshadowing of the three persons. Because he has anointed me. Now notice this is right after Jesus' baptism. 
to do what? To bring good news to the poor he has sent me, to proclaim to the captives release and sight to the blind, to set at liberty the oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of recompense. This is a reference to the Jewish practice of the Jubilee year, which was celebrated every 50 years. In closing the volume, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were gazing upon him. The beauty and the majesty of that sacred humanity. Is it any wonder that hearing the word of God, himself proclaimed the word of God, that everyone was gazing upon him with expectation? Then he said something they probably did not expect. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all bore him witness and marveled at the words of grace that came from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Here we, come, we start to get into the beginning of the put down. They cannot deny the noble, the noble countenance, the beauty of his person, the power of his speech and what he has done. And yet at the same time, there's not a real metanoia taking place here in Nazareth. And he said to them, you will quote me this proverb, physician, cure thyself. Whatever things we have heard of done you, that you did in Capernaum, do here also in thy country. In other words, they wanted the honor of having Jesus perform these signs, but there was no real change of heart. But he said to them, amen, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own country. In truth, I say to you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elias when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And none of them, to none of them was Elias sent, but rather to a widowed woman in Sarepta of Sidon. He then goes on to use several other examples, including Eliseus the prophet being sent to Naaman the Syrian. Now in each instance, when he talks about these individuals who God helped in the Old Testament, they were not Jews. And so again, he's showing here, revealing the university of salvation, that God's mercy reaches outside and is not limited just to the confines of Israel. That's why he gets this reaction, and there has been no metanoia. And all in the synagogue, as they heard these things, were filled with wrath. So you go from amazement to anger. And they rose up and put him forth out of the town and led him to the brow of the hill. Nazareth is built on a hill, on a precipice, and you can still go to this day out to that spot. And they, might want, and they wanted to throw him down headlong, but he, passing through their midst, went his way. Talk about a sign, a whole angry town. It's estimated there were about 20,000 people living in Nazareth at that time, taking him to the brow of the hill to throw him down. But again, he reveals himself, just like in John's Gospel, that he is the one who is control of his fate, his life, and his destiny, and he walks right through their midst, and they do not touch him. After this, we are told, he went down to Capernaum, going down to Capernaum, because the city of Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee was well below sea level. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Oftentimes, like we see in Matthew's Gospel, they say he did not teach like the scribes and Pharisees who were quoting others. Jesus, when he spoke, spoke in his own name with his own power and his own authority. He did not have to appeal to anyone else. 
This is part of that implicit Christology which reveals that he's not just a prophet. He's not just a great man, but truly divine. The next incident we see is a confrontation again with Satan. As he begins his ministry in Galilee, we will find a number of these conflicts. Now in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by an unclean devil, and he cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. Notice the use of the plural there. What have we to do with thee, Jesus of Nazareth? Hast thou come here to destroy us? I know who thou art, the Holy One of God. Notice the confusion, the schizophrenia. He goes from let us alone, speaking of we, and then back to the personal pronoun I. This confusion, not knowing who he was. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and go out of him. And when the devil had thrown him down into the midst, he went out of him without harming him at all. And amazement came upon all, and they discussed with one another, saying, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And rumor concerning him went forth into every place and the region thereabout. Very interesting again here. Why did this have such an impact? Not only did he teach with authority, but here when encountering demons, fallen angelic spirits that obviously in the created order are far higher than human beings, this apparent man is able at a word to command them and to drive them out, which means what? He has greater power and authority than even these angels. So, the power and the authority of Christ over angels, these fallen angels, these demons, again reveals that he is no ordinary man. We continue on. But he rose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Capernaum, of course, the city was to be his headquarters, and he was to stay in the house of Simon Peter. And, of course, this has tremendous significance for us, as we will see. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a great fever. And it's interesting here, Luke is using technical medical terms in Greek that you would find, for example, in the classical Greek physician Galen. So it reveals again Luke's attentiveness to medical need and medical problems and diseases. And they besought him for her. Now this was a great fever. This wasn't like she was just laid down with a, with a flu. This was something that truly was life-threatening. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she rose at once and began to wait on them. Isn't that interesting? Christ works this miracle, and what is her response? Immediately she gets up and she serves. So we're being taught here also a spiritual lesson, that when we receive graces, special blessings from the Lord, we also are called to serve. Continuing on, now when the sun was setting, all who had persons sick, with various diseases brought them and he laid hands upon them and cured them and devils also came forth from many crying out and saying thou art the son of god and he rebuked them and did not permit them to speak because they knew that he was the christ this was no great act of grace on the devil's part when they recognize who he is and cry out thou art the son of god clearly they know who he is they recognize him but his primary purpose in silencing them is he does not want his identity to be fully revealed at this time. Probably when they cry out that he is the Son of God, what they're trying to do is stir up trouble. So he has them silenced. Then he continues on. 
Now when it was day, he went out and departed to a desert place, and the crowds were seeking after him, and they came to him and tried to detain him, that he might not depart from them. But he said, To the other towns also I must go and proclaim the kingdom of God, and this is why I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Josephus, who actually had been governor of Galilee, tells us that there were over 204 towns and villages in the region of Galilee alone. And all of them had populations over 15,000. So no wonder was this sense that Jesus felt driven to go to these towns and villages to proclaim the kingdom. We now move on to chapter 5. And we find some very interesting things that will occur in the Galilean ministry as we move on into chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now it came to pass, while the crowds were pressing upon him to hear the word of God, that he was standing by the lake Gennesaret. So you can see how hungry the crowds were to receive the words and the teaching of Jesus. And he saw two boats moored by the lake. But the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, the one that was Simon's, he asked them to put out a little from the land. And sitting down, he began to teach the crowds from the boat. But when he had ceased speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and lower your nets for a catch. Now again, he's staying in Simon's house. We have to be attentive to how much he is associating himself with Simon. When it's time for him to preach to the crowds, there are two boats, but he goes in to Simon's boat. Now, after finishing this discourse, teaching to the crowd, he turns to Peter and says, Put out into the deep and lower your nets for a catch. Now, he's first addressing Peter in the singular. The verb is singular. You, Peter, is the one he's addressing. Then when he says, put out to the deep, it shifts to the plural. So, in other words, he's speaking to Simon, okay, but along with Simon and through Simon to the others who are there. So, he's teaching us something about the unity that these others are to have with Peter and through Peter. Simon answered. Notice he doesn't call him Peter yet. He calls him Simon. Simon answered and said to him, Master, the whole night through we have toiled and have taken nothing, but at thy word I will lower the net. You have to see a certain amount of possibly sarcasm in Peter's expression. Here he's been laboring all night. Peter's the fisherman. He knows how to fish. And everyone knows that on the Sea of Galilee, the best time to fish is at nighttime. And here he's got this carpenter from Nazareth telling him, uh, you should go out now. So you almost get a sense that he's sort of humoring you. Okay, master, whatever you say. And when they had done so, they enclosed a great number of fishes. But their net was breaking. And they beckoned to their comrades in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, and they began to sink. Now notice what Luke does here. But when Simon Peter saw this, notice, Luke no longer calls him just Simon, but now calls him Simon Peter. Why? Because this incident is important for the future of the church. When Simon Peter, Simon Rock, saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now notice, before, Simon had called Jesus Master. Now clearly seeing that a supernatural act worthy of divinity had been performed, 
Simon Peter, Simon Rock, now in his capacity of recognizing this, says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Recognizing or pointing to Jesus' divinity as seen in this divine action. Contrasted with the Lord's holiness, he recognizes his own sinfulness. And then Luke tells us how truly remarkable this catch of fish was. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had made. And so were James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, and notice again the compassion of Jesus, Do not be afraid. Henceforth thou shalt catch men. So pointing to Simon and his future role in the church, that he will now be catching men, that his life as a fisherman was to come to an end. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left all and followed him. So in the power of this witness, we see this tremendous victory and the initial call of the apostles. We move on to another sign of our Lord's compassion, not only directed towards Peter, but to someone else now. And it came to pass while he was in one of the towns that, behold, there was a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And stretching forth his hand, he touched him, saying, I will, be thou mayst clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no man, but go, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift for thy purification, as Moses commanded for a witness to them. What do we want to notice here? A number of things. No one suffered and experienced more isolation than a leper. They were required to cry out, unclean, unclean, could never approach anyone. And notice when he comes to Jesus, he clearly addresses him as, with faith, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst makest me clean. Notice his faith in addressing Jesus as Lord, believing that he can do this. But notice he's not there claiming his rights or any powers over Jesus at all. Notice the humility. And something that would have shocked Jesus' contemporaries, he did what no rabbi ever would have done. He reached out and he touched him. He touched the untouchable. Nothing would have shocked his contemporaries more. When we hear people say that Jesus was just a first century Jew, nonsense. Praise God for his compassion. We'll pick up with this in our next program. Thank you for being with us today. Mm -hmm.